Tubals in a China Shop is brought to you by these great companies that are giving us money to let you listen to their stuff. Bullshit, Kyle. We make this show. We make this show. You and me. Tubals in a China Shop is brought to you by us. <laughs> Someone's got to pay the bills, Dan, because it's not our trading. <laughs> <laughs> All right, roll them. You are listening to an entertainment program put together by a company called Financial Ineptitude. Anything said on this show is not an endorsement or professional advice. Would you really want to tell a court of law you were suing us because you thought taking financial advice from two idiots on a podcast put out by Financial Ineptitude was a good idea? Really? Clown hats on your face. All right. Hello and welcome. Step into the China shop, folks. Get on inside. We have another amazing, wonderful guest episode. Piping hot, ready for you. As always, I'm Shopkeeper Dan. With me is Kyle, greaterfinancialnipstitude.com. How are you doing today, Kyle? I'm doing good. Excited about today's guest. Yes. Not that often we meet a trader and kickboxer. World champion, no, no less. <laughs> no, right? Twice. Folks, we are joined by Derek Oldensmith from T3 Trading. How are you doing today, Derek? I'm doing well, Dan and Kyle. Good to be here. Tell us a little bit more about uh, this kickboxing uh, before we get uh, too far into your background. I want to hear more about this. <laughs> sure. So usually not what I end up talking about on you know more <laughs> financial related things, but it's a big right? part of my life, so I'm happy to do it. So it, it all goes back, I guess, about 30 something years ago to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Nice. Yes. Are you, yes. Are you familiar? Mm. You guys know them? Oh, very familiar. 100%. Which turtle were you? Heroes in a Half Shell. I was a big Donatello guy when I was a kid. Me too. Yep. I was a Raphael. I was a Raphael guy. <laughs> oh, so you're, you're a tough guy, huh? <laughs> I'm a hothead. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, basically I was I was a kid and I was into the Ninja Turtles and I, and I begged my dad to sign me up for karate lessons. Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, late 80s early 90s when that was really cool and karate kid karate kid and all that stuff mm-hmm. that's right so it just so happened that the local martial arts dojo was headed up by this guy master bob morrow who himself was a former world champion kickboxer and has trained i don't know probably five or so professional kickboxing champions world champions over the course of his career so i, I got started just with the basic martial arts aspect was really into that when i was a kid uh in high school for a little bit there couple years i was like too cool for karate type of thing Mm -hmm. but i i I missed the sparring aspect you know putting the gloves on and being able to to punch and kick so i went back to the gym one day and i was like hey can i come back to spar and it just so happened that this guy chris algieri who was uh world he was was at that point i guess champion of the united states eventually becomes a two-time world kickboxing champion then segues into professional boxing becomes a professional boxing champion fought Manny Pacquiao for however many millions of dollars that payday was oh, wow. and he needed sparring partners so I was like okay I'm happy to be the sparring the, partner dummy for this guy <laughs> exactly exactly yeah. the punching bag and you know most of his sparring partners wouldn't come back because he would whoop their butts so hard right and for me you know i i would get beaten up and it just motivated me i, I wanted to get back in there i was like man if i could just land one one punch on this guy who's a professional fighter tr- training for you know world titles if i could just get one punch on him i want to do that mm-hmm. and so I, I kept coming back and then eventually i was like well maybe i should do an amateur fight since i'm sparring in the gym all the time anyway and the amateur fights were so easy after sparring you know professional world champion right so uh, i was undefeated 
defeated as, a, as an amateur fighter, won some amateur belts. And then in 2009, I turned pro. Wow. So I, I fought professional kickboxing for about 10 years or so. I ended up having a total of like 40 fights or, or so. The, the majority of them were, were W's. Eventually won you know two world titles myself. And uh, it's been a big part of my life. And it's actually been a big part of, of my trading career also, because I think that one of the reasons why I've been able to be successful in this business was because I have that martial arts background with the discipline that's required mm-hmm. to be successful in it. And the, you know, the, the motivation of, you know, you get, you get hit in the liver and you, you get knocked down, you got to get right back up. Well, if you've been trading for as long as I have, I promise you're going to get hit in the liver a couple of times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, those liver shots are rough. Yeah. yeah. Let's put a pin on that. Cause I definitely want to come back to the, how the two tie together. Cause I think, yes, I hear a lot about uh, prop firms. Like they like to go after former athletes and poker players. Yep. It's definitely something that, you know, I, I'm on the recruiting side also of, of T3 trading group. I've been here for 12 years. I've been managing professional traders for the company for the last nine years that gave me the opportunity to start my own trading desk back in 2013. So I definitely get my fair share of, of resumes that I look through. And, you know, whenever I see that athletic background or, you know, a, a background like poker, which I personally never played, but I understand that it's game of probabilities. If you've got that kind of mindset, you can be successful at those things. You really can translate that over, I think, in, into trading. You mentioned uh, T3. That's uh, Can you tell us a little bit more about your trading group? Sure. I see that it looks like you guys offer uh, education and some other stuff too, as well as like a virtual trading floor. I'm curious what that means. Sure. So, so T3 has a parent company that's called T3 Companies, and there's a bunch of different sister companies underneath that, like T3 Trading Group, which is the Finner Registered Broker Dealer. It's a, a professional trading company that engages in prop trading and retail trading. We have T3 Live, which is our education and media company. And then there's some other sister companies like, you know, T3 Technologies, which is involved in, you know, black boxes and HFTs and things like that. My primary focus with T3 is is with T3 Trading Group and and with T3 Live. T3 Trading Group is where I've been for uh, since 2010. I've been there for for 12 years now. Mm -hmm. So I first started with the company as just an entry level proprietary trader focused on equities and was able to do okay for myself in the beginning. I, I thought I knew a lot about trading and markets before I joined T3. The truth was I really didn't. I was into a, a rude awakening there. <laughs> but I was able to understand early on that the key to this business is risk and money management. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, I, I tell my traders this all the time. At the end of the day, we're really playing a math game. All you have to do to be successful it's as simple as making more money than you lose. Right. Or I guess sometimes it's as, as difficult as making more money than you lose, right? But I, I did understand that early on in my career. It enabled me to keep a good lid on the downside when things didn't go well and, and have some small consistent success that I worked on adding scale to over the years. And as I was saying before, it eventually led to the opportunity where I got to start my own trading desk in 2013. It started as me and two other professional traders. Mm-hmm. I've been able to develop that into what has become T3's largest group of professional traders. I currently am directly managing a little over 150 professional traders on a day-to-day basis. I think that's the number now. Oh, wow. The main way that I was able to develop the group of traders that I'm working with to this size and scale is because I created a lot of infrastructure for the training and development of the people that I work with. Mm-hmm. So every day I conduct a morning meeting at 9 a.m. Eastern, an afternoon meeting at 10 after four. Every afternoon meeting ends in a group Q&A session. I created training programs. 
Everyone gets access to this virtual trading force software that T3 Live created. And by putting all that stuff together and by having success with the team that I was working with, it enabled me to expand what I did at T3 to get more involved with T3 Live, which is that education and media company. They said, hey, Derek, you're already training professional traders. Why can't we translate that into the education and media offerings that that T3 Live has? Mm -hmm. And um, things have gone well eventually in early 2020, T3 Trading Group put me in charge of business development for their their equity and equity options business as a whole. So that has me in touch with all, I think we've got 500 plus traders overall at the company on a professional side at this point. Wow. And, and this is all, by the way, while I'm trading myself. Right. You know, so they, <laughs> they, they keep me they keep me more than a, a little bit busy because I am to this day a pretty active equity trader. I day trade, I swing trade, I have a quantitative strategy I've developed to implement by hand as the market on a day-to-day basis. Time frame for my positions would be anywhere from minutes at the shortest to over a year at the longest if things line up properly. Mm-hmm. And I, I have a heavy heavy focus on technical analysis, but I also do incorporate fundamentals with what I'm doing. Oh. So hopefully that's the overview you're looking for. So a little bit of both. Seems like the, the TA guys don't like the uh, the fundamentals guys, vice versa. <laughs> it not that the truth? And, and yeah, to me, yeah. that, that's always been the most bizarre thing in the world. You know, you, you mm-hmm. can name almost any trading strategy and you can find someone who has been extremely extremely successful at that right you know you look at how can you tell me fundamentals don't work when warren buffett exists right yeah yeah you know and at the same time how can you tell me technicals don't work when a guy like paul tudor jones exists or stevie cohen exists Mm -hmm. Uh, obviously they do so I, i actually love to combine both i think that fundamentals can tell you what you want to be involved in but it's the technicals that tell you the timing on when to get involved, how to manage the risk in case you're wrong, and how to manage your reward for when your when your opportunities work out. Mm-hmm. Um, let's uh, let's let's take a step back. On you, you mentioned that uh, you, you started out kind of trading, uh, and then you got hired in on, with the prop firm and started doing some some of that. Uh, what was like the main difference? Because you said you thought you knew a lot until you started trading for somebody else professionally. Like what were some of the, the, the big shocks or the big differences? Sure. So I actually bought my first stock when I was 13 years old. I bought $500 or so worth of Nike stock based on mm-hmm. money I had saved up. And I became fascinated with this market ever since that point, because I used to do these kind of dirty jobs like helping my dad pick up litter in the parking lot of his business uh, for you know a dollar here or a dollar there to all of a sudden seeing how money can make money for itself. I was fascinated with that. Right. So got into college and then, you know, typical broke college kid. I certainly didn't have too much money and, you know, probably 2006 or 2007, something like that. I started to have a, just a little bit of side cash and I said, hey, let me invest this money. Let me start a, a journey here because I, I knew by that point I wanted to be a trader. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if I want to be a trader, well, I better get involved in markets and start learning a little bit, right? Um, Because school's only going to teach me so much. Right. So I think it was in 07. It was when the market was near its top before the financial crisis. Yep. I was trying to figure out what stocks I should buy with the small amounts of money I had. So I said to myself, well, why don't I look at what the professionals have to say? You've got these professional Wall Street analysts who... Well, it sounds like they get paid pretty well by the banks that they work for. They must know a thing or two. So instead of doing all my own work, why don't I just see what they have to say? So I went on to Yahoo Finance and they give you some information there that told you what analysts said the stock should be at. Mm-hmm. And I decided to make this simple process where I just looked at where a stock's price was and I looked at where the analyst said it was supposed to be. And 
I bought a few stocks just based on, well, these analysts think they belong at higher prices, so let me buy that. So I ended up buying Bank of America, Morgan Stanley, one, one of the banks. I don't remember which one it was, but one of the ones that went bust. Were these all the banks that the people worked for? <laughs> <laughs> like the JP Morgan analysts say, I think JP Morgan should be $150 a share. You know, funny how, funny how that works, right? So uh, that, that was my first thought process. And then I got the great pleasure of watching that Bank of America position that I bought because some analysts said that the stock was supposed to go up, go to like a, like a dollar and change and basically wipe the entire position out. And, I, you know, again, luckily it wasn't too much money because I didn't have a lot of money at the time. Mm-hmm. But I said, you know, what the heck is this? What's going on here? And and, and now as, as the traders on my team know, I, I just have the worst disdain for those Wall Street sell side analysts. All they do is, is chase price. We see it every day. It's so bad. Like, oh, the, the energy stocks are going up. Okay. Right. Here a week later, here come all the upgrades. Oh, look, the 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 growth stocks are going down. The same growth stocks that they were all upgrading back at the end of, you know, twenty 20- 20 when they were going through the roof and basically having bubbles now they're going down so let's have some time for the analysts to downgrade all of them and it's just like it's such a joke so <laughs> one of the things that we've uh, we've always thought was that the analysts basically exist to drum up interest for the, the institutional trading yep if someone's selling you that Bank of America should be valued much higher than it actually is trading at, that's because institutions are holding a bunch of shares that they need to get the hell out of. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're supposed to be, you know, they're supposed to have, uh, I forget what the what the new term is, but they used to call them Chinese walls back some years ago where, you know, you can't have the analyst speak to the investment banker and things like that. Mm-hmm. But it does always seem like the analysts do things that are in in the best interest of, of the bank itself. Right. You know, just, just, just. I have no proof of that just from, you know, looking at it from the outside based on seeing the upgrades and downgrades every day. It just seems that analysts in general have an ulterior motive for what they what they print is all I'm going to say. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, when you think about it, um, Charlie Munger says that the, the, the older that he gets, the more he understands incentives drive everything. Mm-hmm. And, and that's one of the things that I always preach to the traders that I work with as well. You know, what is the number one incentive of a hedge fund manager? It's, it's not actually to make money. That's his number two incentive. His number one incentive is to raise as much money as possible. So he's going to do things that can help him do that, even if it's not necessarily in the best interest, interest of performance. What's the number one interest of an, an analyst that's on, on Wall Street on the sell side? It's not necessarily to provide you information that's going to give you a good investment. Mm-hmm. It's to make sure that they're as right as possible so that they are able to continue to have their jobs and keep getting that nice, you know, six figure paycheck that they're getting year after year. Mm-hmm. So it's just stuff to keep in, in the back of your head. So uh, I think we kind of went off the rails a little bit there. <laughs> the differences <laughs> between being a prop trader and a uh, just a, a, an everyday college guy trading. Oh yeah, that, that's right. Sorry about that. So so <laughs> right. you, I, you know you get me started on one topic and I can just uh, I can just keep going on it for you. If it wasn't interesting, I'd stop you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So you know th- that was basically the initial thought process is, is knowing absolutely nothing. And then when I graduated, I, I became a sales trader for a couple of years before I joined T3 and got into prop. Mm-hmm. And on the sales trading side, you know, basically I was acting as, as a middle person. I, I, I was speaking to someone, an institution on the buy side and speaking to an institution on the sell side. And this was during the financial crisis as well. So it was primarily, you know, distressed instruments. Mm-hmm. And basically I just wanted to get them to match on price to create a commission for the company that I was working for. 
And it, it left me a little bit unfulfilled because I wanted to know the why behind the actions. Right. You know, why is if, if these are both institutions, these are supposed to be some of the smartest folks that are out there. Why is it that this institution needs to sell this product or get it off their books at any fire sale price? And this other institution is looking at this as an opportunity to be able to come in and get that fire sale price for an asset that they think is going to be worth more over time. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to know more about that thought process. And, and long story short, that's what led to me getting involved in proprietary trading. I didn't just want to be on the phone with clients. I wanted to be the person who was the decision maker. I wanted to be studying and analyzing the market, figuring out how to manage risk and coming up with, with my own why. And when I first got into the business, I worked with a group of people that focused entirely on day trading. So that that's how I started. I probably didn't keep a position overnight my first couple of years in, in the prop business. It was all very short-term trading that was highly leverized, le- leveraged, a, a lot of old school tape reading tricks, which honestly don't work anymore in, in, in 2022, but still worked a little bit back you know, 10, 12 years ago. Mm-hmm. And that's how I first got involved, but really doesn't, regardless of your time frame, the same principles are going to be true about money management. So you know, I was working with people who are implementing the exact same strategies that I was looking at, but they weren't able to be successful. And I would ask myself why. And it's, well, they let their down days get too big. Mm -hmm. Or if they had a winner that was on their side, even from a day trading perspective, they wouldn't ride it properly to be able to make money. So it was certainly a learning process. And and, and the market taught me a lot because the markets evolved and markets changed and I had to change my strategies over time. But what I tell people is that you should never learn from just one source. Like T3 is great. T3 Live is great. You can learn a ton from the company that I work from, it's a great starting point. Mm-hmm. But I say, learn from as many resources as you can get your hands on. Learn from every book you can read. Learn from every you know, seasoned trader that's out there. Most importantly, every trader is going to have to learn from themselves. You learn from your own mistakes, your own successes, what works for you, what works for your personality. And that was one thing I started doing very early on in my own professional prop trading career was just keeping statistics, keeping journals. And, and I would study for hours and hours and hours, the things I did right and wrong in the market to try to improve upon it. I would, I was the first person to get to the office every day. I was the last person to leave the office every day. I'd be there for at least 12 hours unless every once in a while I would, if I saw like one of the really good senior traders who, you know, makes and loses hundreds of thousands of dollars leaving the office ahead of me, I would like fake shut down my computer just to be able to catch an elevator ride with that person to pepper uh-huh. him with a few questions as if I was actually <laughs> leaving. Smart. And then I'd go right back up into the office and get right back at, you know, my review. Sunday would come around and I would do a review of my my week and build out these weekly journals. And I would spend anywhere from two to eight hours on a Sunday just reviewing every single trade that I took with an objective mindset because my P&L wasn't in front of me anymore and and, and things like that. And, you know, it was just a, a lot of putting all that together over the years that got me to kind of where I am today. Speaking to you guys. That's a, that's a secret that we figured out is if you start a podcast, you can talk to all those people. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> They'll actually come to you most of the time. Awesome. Long enough. <laughs> We're the porter in the elevator that's pressing the buttons for them. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Uh, so how long were you doing the prop trading before you uh, you moved on to, to creating your own basically curriculum is what it sounds like. So I had been prop trading on my own for basically three years, but within the second half or so of that three years, 
um, some of the, the managers that I was working for were saying to me, you know, hey, Derek, you're, you're doing well. Do you mind taking a trader or two under your wing just to coach them a little bit? So I had already started to get that exposure there. Mm-hmm. And, and I enjoy teaching, you know, going back to the martial arts thing. I, I've been teaching martial arts for 20 years. So I, I think that that's helped me to be a good teacher since I've been doing that for so long. And that's another thing that just translated well. You know, I did well, I guess, working with a, with a couple of people. And that's what led to me, uh, along with my own trading, having the opportunity in 2013 to, to then officially be able to start my own trading desk and officially have traders that were under me that I was bringing into the company and I was going to be responsible for their success. You mentioned that you had, uh, was it like 150 uh, traders now that are working for you uh, that you're managing? Is that, is that the right number? Yep. It's somewhere around that number. Yeah. What's the uh, what's the typical success rate of the, the person who tries to get into that? Like how many of those people did you have? What did you start with to get to that number? <laughs> sure. Sure. That's a great question. This is a really difficult business. And, and that's mm-hmm. one of the things that I'm always really upfront with people about. Not everyone who pursues to become successful, even, you know, if you join T3 Trading Group as a professional trader, I promise I'm going to work my butt off to try to get you successful. So will T3. I promise that you're going to learn a lot, but I can't promise that anyone will actually be successful and be able to turn this into a career because you're going to be making all of your own choices and all of your own decisions. So success rates vary pretty dramatically, I think, based on a couple of factors. Mm-hmm. One is the type of background that you're coming from. So I've got people on my team who are... You know, former hedge managers, floor traders, pit traders, guys with decades of trading experience. And I've got other people on the team who are recent college graduates just getting their career started for the first time. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the person who's got 20 years of experience, even if it wasn't directly in prop trading, but they were an asset manager of some sort and they're coming into this business is going to have a higher probability of being successful than the person who is, you know, just getting out of college and, and, and just starting for the first time, mm-hmm. which you know, doesn't mean that that person can't be successful either. It's just that their learning curve is so steep. And and that's why, by the way, not to get off topic again, stop me if I get off topic. <laughs> that's why risk management is so crucial for everyone, but especially that entry level trader who's first getting started. Mm-hmm. I, I can count on probably one hand over the 12 years that I've been on this business, the amount of entry level traders I've seen who are profitable their first one trade. It just tends to not really happen. It's just it's such a big learning curve. You don't even know what you don't know yeah. if you're two weeks into a, a professional career. It really takes a solid nine to 12 months just to get through the mechanical aspect of the learning curve before we start even getting into psychology and, and things like that, just to learn all the different mechanics that are necessary for success in trading. So uh, that's going to be one factor. Another factor is market environment. You know, they, mm-hmm. they generally say in prop trading that the success rate is 5%. And I, I'm pretty confident that I've been able to to beat that over time. Mm-hmm. But year by year is so dramatic. You take a year like 2015. 2015 was the most difficult trading year that I can remember. The market basically went sideways in a really tight range almost all year. We had neither direction nor volatility. We tend to really need one or the other or ideally both right. to, to be really successful. We had almost no direction the entire year 2015 until August 24th, 2015, when the China had the little yuan crisis there that caused the market to have that just insane, insane, almost mini flash crash on that day, which don't let me get off topic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you take a year like that, it's very hard 
to to get a, an entry level trader successful. Right. Then you take a year like you know a 2020 or a 2013 was another one that was a lot easier. And 2020 is when a lot of people first got into the business, and the market was just so forgiving on your mistakes. Yeah. You you make a risk management mistake in some garbage company, and you hold it against you. Next thing you know, you know it becomes a meme, and it's flying all the way up, and you're making <laughs> right. all that money back from your mistake plus a lot more. So if you get started in that type of environment, it's going to be much more conducive to making money while you're going through your learning process. So what were some of the like common traits that I, that you you find with the uh, the entry level. I mean, obviously the people who have 20 years of experience are ahead of the curve, but you know, when you grab a guy who's straight out of college, like what are some of the common themes that you've noticed among the people who are successful? Sure. Uh, discipline and work ethic would, would be the, the first two things that just come straight to, to my mind. Mm-hmm. Discipline is really multifaceted. You know, first and foremost, what I keep preaching on is discipline in regards to, to risk management and money management, but really it's discipline about rules. Because everything is about the rules that you set. You, you set money management rules for yourself. You set risk rules for yourself. Mm-hmm. Then you have to have the discipline to follow them. I always feel like in a phone call or on a podcast, like it sounds so easy. Right. Like I'm going to make a rule for myself where I never lose more than $500 in a day or whatever, yeah. whatever, you know? Yeah. Then the numbers are moving. And then, oh my God, am I going to get out right here? I think it's going to be the bottom. I can't get out right here. I can't exit this position in this moment. This is going to be the absolute bottom and I'm going to get out and the stock's going to go up. And then what? You know, it's about the long run mm-hmm. because trading is a game of probabilities. In the long run, every single possible thing that can happen will happen. You're going to have the, the trade where you buy the high tick and sell the low tick. You're going to have the trade where you get shaken out at the low and then it works beautifully. You're going to have the trade where uh, you don't get stopped out by one penny and then the trade works out great. We don't remember those though. And that's exactly <laughs> right. That, that is exactly right. And that's actually one thing I go out of my way to do. Mm-hmm. Whenever I'm doing one of my team's afternoon meetings and it's one of those occasions where I barely didn't get stopped out of a position, I always really make sure to bring it up because traders all the time will start moaning and groaning about, oh my God, I can't believe this stock showed me, stopped me out. I never get the luck. Yeah, I never I never get lucky ever. And, it, and it's not true. You do get lucky sometimes. You just It just doesn't stand out in your brain because it's not nearly as painful as getting stopped out at, at that absolute low. Right. Mm-hmm. So I actually go out of my way to point out, oh my God, look, I didn't get stopped out by two cents in this trade and it worked great and it's my best name on the day. And you know, the opposite happens sometimes too, but we have a recency bias, which can negatively impact our, our thought process for trading. And it's just going to be in the long run, every possible scenario that can happen will happen over time. But the only way that you can have consistency to go back to the original question before we get more off topic <laughs> is to have discipline with, with those rules on, on everything that you do. You know, here, here's a here, here, I think, is a great takeaway for, for any of your, your listeners. Mm-hmm. We, we all want to be consistently profitable. Well, the only way that you can be consistent is to do things consistently with the market. And the only way that you're going to be able to do things consistently with the market is to have rules that enable you to do that. If you're coming in and you're doing one thing this day and one thing the next day and you're changing your risk management rules and you're just getting out of this position because it went up a little bit and you feel like it, that's not following a set of rules that are going to breed the type of consistency and approach 
that actually can create consistent profitability. It's almost like profitability is like a like the back end of it. Right. It's, it's really not what's that important. Being profitable is a good is the reward of good risk management. I think is the saying, right? Ex- exactly. You just got to follow your rules consistently over time. Speaking of rules, like what are some of your big ones then? Sure. So um, my rules are I've got I've got so many I've got rules for pretty much every single scenario that you can think of. <laughs> every single trading scenario I could find myself, I have rules in. Do you have cardinal rules? But I've got some some broader rules. They come down to game planning. Mm-hmm. Game planning is a really important part of it. Game planning starts with risk management always and then reward maximization after that. But you have to develop game plans for yourself where the risk, reward, and probability of success come to play that that can make it so that your winners are bigger than your losers. Mm -hmm. And that's important because most successful traders I know, by the way, are actually wrong more often than they're right. About forty percent, I think, is the uh, the around the industry average. Yep, I, I know I know a few traders out there who can actually be consistently profitable with a winning percentage of their trades and just making one to one on their risk. But that's that's very few and far between. Yeah, mm-hmm. most of the time it's you're going to be wrong more often than you're going to be right. And it's your risk reward that actually makes up for it. So you have to have rules in place, first of all, for the downside. How much am I going to lose in this trade? You need to know that before you get into it. How much am I going to allow myself to lose over a series of trades, whether that series of trades comprises a day or comprises a week or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And then you have to have rules for the upside also. So the majority, the number one reason why traders don't succeed is because of that failure to manage risk that we're discussing. But I do also see traders occasionally who don't succeed, who actually are good risk managers, but they're not there for the reward. Mm -hmm. And I'll I'll go and I'll look at their track record with them or whatever. And it's like, well, you know, you do a great job never letting yourself lose more than that $500 in any given day. But you never have a day where you make more than $300 in a given day. These numbers just just aren't going to work out. And they're like, oh, yeah, you know, as soon as I see myself making money, I want to I just want to book it. I don't want to give it back. Right. They have that that saying in trading, you don't go broke taking profits. I, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't I don't agree with it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 you do. You can go broke taking profits because if you can allow yourself to lose 500 bucks in a day and you're taking your profits as soon as you're up 300, you're going to go broke. It's not going to make sense. Right. You know, so, so you've got to put yourself in the position to have rules for reward maximization, rules for individual trades. And, and for me, you know, I break down trades very broadly into two major types. There are counter trend trades. And there are with trend trades. And mm-hmm. I guess technically you also have range-based trades. I kind of put that more in the in the counter trend category than, than the with trend category. But your basic principle here is that trends tend to last much longer than people expect they will. So if you are counter trend on your trading, that inherently means that your reward will almost always have a cap on that. Right. Unless you are some sort of god of trading and you're much better than me and you can perfectly pick every top and bottom that comes in the market. I'm yet to meet that person. Um, no. <laughs> I don't think he exists. Unless he's making the market. Maybe Powell? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or n- never mind. I'm not going to go there. <laughs> oh, you can go there. The, the comp- I know, right? <laughs> the compliance department might be upset if we start talking about politicians. <laughs> To go back to what we're talking about, if if you're if you're with trend and you go by that same principle that trends can last for much longer than anyone ever expects, you know, if I'm long the stock and it's trending higher and it's at all time highs, what's what's my reward potential on that trade? It's infinite, right? You know, obviously, infinite reward is is just like not real, but 
one of the best tr trends that I've ever personally run in my or, or in my trading career was starting in 2014. I got long Microsoft because Steve Ballmer was out. I thought was a terrible CEO, and they put this put this guy Satya Nadella in. And I'm listening to him, and this goes back to incorporating fundamentals with your technicals. I'm listening to things he's talking about as he's a CEO about how he wants to transform Microsoft, get away from you know the traditional Windows business and start to focus on cloud and artificial intelligence and, and all these new future technologies and businesses. Yet they've got you know the, the backdrop still of, of Windows and you know Microsoft Office as a as a core business there that's just a cash flowing machine for them. And they're gonna take that and they're gonna try to build a empire of a business off of that. And I and I said man, I really like how this guy's talking. Mm -hmm. And I looked at the chart. The chart had been going sideways for 10 years under Steve Ballmer. And I'm looking at this, testing this resistance level for this breakout, you know, shortly after Satya Nadella became CEO. And I took a simple breakout trade. Well, I implemented my reward maximization rules for, on a swing trading basis on a weekly chart that enabled me to ride a weekly trend. Mm -hmm. And if you go look at a weekly chart I'm of looking Microsoft. at it right now. <laughs> if, if you look at a weekly chart of Microsoft going back to 2014, and, and you know exactly what my trailing rules are, I've got three trailing rules. If, if you follow my rules on that weekly chart, you don't get stopped out of Microsoft until COVID in 2020. Yep. Yep. That's, a, that's a six year trend. You, you think when I bought Microsoft as a breakout in 2014, as much as I like what Satya Nadella was talking about, that I thought I could potentially hold this thing for six years? Well, you know, there, right. there's your risk reward. <laughs> Even better, you got past that year mark too, so they're long term gains. Yep, yep, for sure. Yeah, that's a hell of a trend. Yeah, great, great company. Still, still my favorite company in the market, even though I, I, I don't have a position in this moment. Well, let's talk about managing the runners. Actually, I want to hear a little bit more about that. That's one of the things that I uh, usually end up having trouble with. I'll usually get you know three to five lots on an option contract. They'll start going my way uh, around twenty to thirty percent. I like to take my first trim. That kind of moves based on you know uh, structure. Sure. But then the next two runners that come out after that, like say I take, you know, 60% out at, you know, 30%, then I've got two more runners left to go. They usually end up getting taken off pretty soon after that because what you said, like, I don't want to give back gains. I try to pick structure for it, but then that always ends up being uh, the low of that move and then takes off again after. But, but at that point, what does it matter? You've already booked so much of your position and you've got the, you know, this little runner that's left. What, what does it matter if you give back a percentage of what you've already made in order to make more on, on that? It, it, it really shouldn't. It's just I usually end up either closing it out too soon or getting stopped out before the continuation move. Sure. So, so there, there's nothing wrong with booking a percentage of your position as, as profit. And, and I actually, I like to sell a, a decently large percentage of my position very quickly on the trades that I'm in to cover my risk. Yeah. So I, I, I like to get to a win-win situation where, you know, as soon as I know that my worst case scenario, unless there's some sort of crazy overnight news event and I'm holding it overnight or something like that, um, I, I, want, I want to know that my worst case scenario on this is at least zero, if not better. Yep. And once I hit that point, that is when I become what I like to call strategically greedy. Like I, I don't want to just be greedy all the time uh, because that 
sometimes can cause you to not make any money. <laughs> but right. when I'm in a win-win situation, the risk is covered. Well, this is where I really need to do everything I can to, to maximize my reward. So I still might you know, do what you were describing and take a percentage off at the next resistance level or just purely based on you know risk reward math. I'm, I'm five to one in the money. I'm 10 to one in the money. I'm just going to book a little bit. Or sometimes I like to, if it's a, a long position as an example and it gives me a really fast move in a short period of time on momentum so it gets extended to the upside i like to just book a little profit into into that extension but if i'm with the trend i really don't want to ever get out of that last bit mm-hmm. that last you know let's call it and, and it's going to depend a little bit on the trade and how much like the daily chart but anywhere from 10 to 40 percent of my initial position after I'm really in that win-win situation, my goal is to follow rules, of course, that will enable me to get stopped out. But I don't. I want to be able to hold this position for as long as physically possible and let it continue to pay me and pay me. Because I actually hate putting risk on, which sounds crazy because it's what I, what I do. <laughs> I do it every day. <laughs> I, I, that first time when you press the button and you might lose money, I hate that. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't like losing money when I first. Pre- you know. I, you know. But I don't want to do that. But you know, if if I've got this position that I am, I I, I will potentially. I'm willing to give back significantly more PNL than I'm willing to actually put on initially as risk. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. Because I'm in that win-win situation, and I I just want to maximize this, and I want to be able to follow these rules to to let it continue. So I have three rules for trailing. I trail based on a pivot low. I need the ADMA to have caught up to that pivot low and I need a new high to come in. Um, I speak to a lot of retail people and you know, maybe they're interested in becoming a professional prop trader or whatever it is. And I love to ask them, okay, well, tell me a little bit about your own personal trading that you've been doing. And you know, there are no wrong answers. I just want to learn about your thought process and what you've been implementing. I can't tell you how often people tell me, oh, you know, I just... Um, I just use a trailing stop that's based on a certain percentage or based on a certain dollar amount of what I'm up or something like that. Mm-hmm. But the the market doesn't care about that information. Yep. The mar- the market doesn't doesn't know that you're 10% of the money and only willing to give 2% back. That's not what's important to the market. You're making <laughs> when when you're doing things like that, you're making decisions that are important to yourself. What you need to be doing is making decisions that are important to market it's funny i think it took us six months to learn our lessons with trailing stops yes at least but i've never put the the thought together like how you just said right there right making your decisions based on what's important to the market you know rule number one i got a pivot low Well, well what is a pivot low a pivot low is the actual spot in the market where buyers took control from sellers or if it's a downtrend then sellers took control from buyers you know just just think about up for the moment because it's easier thought process. Mm -hmm. So I've got this pivot low that comes in. That is the actual spot where buyers took control from sellers. That's significant. And then for me, I I use an eight and 21 EMA in in my charts. My charts actually are very simple. I I use Japanese candlesticks, I use volume, and I use a handful of moving averages that are really important to me. Volume profile or just regular volume? Just regular volume. I don't. I don't have any other advanced indicators in there. It doesn't mean that I don't pay attention to the information when it's provided to me. I, I absolutely do. But I think that traders, especially new traders, very easily become overly dependent upon indicators, and that they need to remember that all an indicator is is something that indicates something. Mm-hmm. Like, like literally, <laughs> an indicator is something that indicates that something could happen based on other metrics. So I like to. If someone provides me information about any type of indicator, 
it's what I call a layer of probability. Well, because you're telling me that this indicator is saying that the stock should have a bounce here or whatever, that, that doesn't mean that it has to happen. It just means that there's a slightly greater probability that it will occur. Right. So I, I like to use just a couple of simple moving averages, the 8 and 21 EMA. In an uptrending stock, I consider the 80 EMA to be what I call the upper band of technical equilibrium for the market. So if the stock is trading well above that ADMA, then it is technically extended to some degree. And if it's touching that ADMA or it's pulled through it, it's somewhere between the 8 and 21 EMA, it's in what I would call kind of technical equilibrium. So that's, that's trailing rule number two. So I need my pivot to occur, but I also, I don't want to raise my stop to an extended pivot. If, if the market is extended and I'm putting my stop loss there, there's a very high probability that I'm going to get pushed out of that position. There's actually a very high probability that I'm going to get shaken out of that position and it's going to continue higher without me. But if the ADMA has caught up to that pivot and the stock is trading at some price above it, there's a much lower probability of a shakeout actually occurring. Hmm. So that's rule number two. And then rule number three is I want a new high to come in because you know, what's the definition of, of, a, of an uptrend? It's a pattern of higher right. highs and higher lows. How do yep. I know that this is the pivot low of an uptrend if a new high actually hasn't come in? I don't have confirmation yet. So when all three of those rules confirm, then I can raise my stop to that next low that came in. And I'll just continue to do that over time. One thing about trailing that I think it's important for people to remember is that, and this is sometimes tricky psychologically. Mm-hmm. If, if you are trailing a position, you will never get out at your P&L highs. Yep. At, you know, everyone, every trader, every trader wants to get out their highs. You know, every trader, you could be having the best day of your career, but you gave back, you know, a couple thousand bucks or whatever at the end of the day. And you're like, dang it, man, I can't believe I didn't close at that other prettier number that I had earlier that I wanted, that I wanted to be up. Uh-huh. You know, so if you're trailing, you're inherently going to be given money back. But in the long run, if you're with the trend, this is probably going to be better for you. Do you ever add to your positions? You know, you get your initial position and it takes off in the direction that you want. Uh, it comes back down into some rotations. Do you ever go in and, and add to it, add to winners? Sure. So I um, define two different things with the team that I work. Mm-hmm. There's adding and there's adding back. Adding means that I had, I had a thousand shares of a position and now I've added to it that I've got 2000 shares of a position. Uh, adding back means I had a thousand shares of a position. I took off 200 of it. It pulled back and I'm putting that 200 back on. Mm-hmm. The difference is that adding is adding risk. Adding back is taking my risk back, but keeping the difference on what I sold and what I bought back. Right. Yeah. You're still realizing something there. Right. So I, I always want to differentiate between those two things. And I do do both. I, I love doing the adding, adding back thing. Mm-hmm. You know, if I see, you know, a, a lot of what I do is I do swing trading where I actively day trade around a core swing position, where I do a lot of what I'm describing right now, where I get this great, nice, fancy move on a five minute chart. So I take a little bit off and then it pulls back into that equilibrium zone. And I put that stock back on where I take my risk back, but kind of keep the difference. That's adding back. Mm-hmm. Adding to me is a whole different trade. So if I've got this breakout trade, whatever, or I got a thousand shares of it and it's working great, and now there's a bull flag that's forming, and I take this bull flag trade, and now I'm putting on another two thousand shares, they might as well be two different stocks for me. 
Mm-hmm. I, I'm not going to let the new ad of a bull flag trade where I'm putting on that risk negatively impact this tr- this other thousand shares that I'm really nicely in the money on. Mm-hmm. Uh, there might as well be two different companies where I'm saying, okay, you know, I'm going to put this extra risk on on this other trade. If I get stopped out of it, okay, fine. Then I still have my my kind of core position here. Right. That's another thing that really messes traders up, even though it's just it's just accounting math. And the math always works out to be the exact same. Like, how do you have your system? Is it calculate? Did you just mess up? Oh, but what if I mess up my average price? (laughs) Well, it doesn't actually make a mathematical difference if you look at the numbers and study them on whether you're using average price or whether you're using having like two separate trades from two separate prices, if if you follow what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. About you, Dan, you got uh, anything you want to ask while we got... You know, an options expert here since you're well, taking more time there? Yeah, since I'm the one actively day trading options. Yes. <laughs> well, he he's really covered a lot of the things and questions I had, especially the thing about runners. Mm-hmm. That, that was my issue today was aggressively moving the stop of my runner. And if I'd kept it in place, the trend continued and I really missed out on doubling my gains for the day. Right. That's something that's been, uh, that I've been wanting to get an answer to <laughs> or a little bit more, I guess, explanation of how to do that properly. Yeah. Yeah. I think we should uh, move on to some of the listener questions. All right. What we got? The first one is, uh, when is it better? Is it better to use naked options and when is a debit spread better? Sure. So I don't personally trade options would be the first thing that I would throw out there. So I may not be the, the best for giving advice on this. I am specifically an equity trader. Oh, and, and I can talk a little bit about why I trade equity and I don't trade options if, if, you, if you'd like. And then I could try to answer your question. I would I would actually. Yeah, I would like you to speak on that. Yeah, I'm sorry. We thought you did. Uh, we thought you were more options. Nope. I, I, I don't trade options pretty much at all. I pay attention to them. One of the things that my team and I like to pay attention to, not to get off topic again, is um, large order institutional option flow that hits the market because it mm-hmm. can act as a really strong layer of probability for what's going to happen next. And that's kind of one of the best ways to get an idea of you know what the big money, what the big institutions are doing is by seeing those large orders hit the marketplace. So the the reason why I don't trade options, I'm a professional proprietary trader. So I'm not limited to retail regulations that you have to deal with like Reg T or or even portfolio margin for for larger retail accounts. Mm -hmm. Uh, In theory, the company can give me access to as much money as I want. So most of the professional prop traders, we usually start in, in T3 trading group. You post up capital as if you're funding any other account, mm-hmm. but we give you access to 20x your capital for equity day trading and 8x your capital for equity overnight positions, and then you're paid based on a on a profit split. So that's a lot of what we do. So I don't have to worry about margin calls. I don't have to worry about you know Reg T 4x 2x and the clearing firm, you know, marking that down even further. So my thought process has always been. Why do I want to trade options, which are a less liquid product and subject to time decay just for extra capital access, which is the primary reason why retail traders are in options, right. when I already have as much capital access as I could ever want. So I don't trade options for that reason. Now, I do have options traders on my team. The primary reason why someone would trade options if you're on my team and you have that capital access is really one of a couple of reasons. One is that you're implementing some sort of complex option strategy, like like a spread like the question had just mentioned that can't really be replicated in the equity market it's a very specific strategy to options or some of my you know bigger swing traders will you know self-covered calls just for cash flow and hedging purposes and 
that's pretty much the extent of it. But for the most part, for a directional trader like I am, mm-hmm. I don't I don't really have any any need or honestly any desire to, to trade options. But I can answer one thing about his question. I don't I don't like the naked song of options. Specifically if that question was geared towards naked calls. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's it's a great way to make a few bucks and make a few bucks and then have no money. So, you know, if, <laughs> if you're if you're implementing, you know, some sort of spread strategy like that where the risk is defined and you can build out an approach and you can, you know, really understand the math behind it and you create rules for it the same way that I was discussing earlier, that's that's what I would go with for, for the listener. Well, one of the things I think that I liked about naked options, not necessarily selling them. I mean, whenever I sell them, they're always either cash secured puts or covered calls, but uh, it's one easy way to cap out my risk. I know my risk is defined as the maximum cost of the contract. Yeah, that is feedback I get from people a lot as well. Uh, I would say that I know my maximum risk because my maximum risk is defined by one of my stop losses. But what? But if you're holding them overnight. Right. So that, that's exactly what I was going to say. There's a couple exceptions to that. One is overnight holdings, which is why I preach that you should, it depends a little bit on the stock, mm-hmm. but I preach that for overnight equity holdings, you should always have a minimum of a 1% profit cushion on an intraday basis in order to keep that position overnight, in order to help mitigate, especially in this crazy volatile market we've been in right now, to help mitigate the downside on that. Mm -hmm. Another time where I think that options actually are your best bet, even though I don't personally do it, is if you wanted to take a bet into an earnings report because you know exactly what your your risk is on it and you really can't do that on equities. But you got to also remember that taking a bet on an earnings report is exactly that. It's a bet. It's, it's gambling. Yeah. It's gambling. You, you have no idea. But, but you know, if you wanted to take that shot, you're much better off doing that gambling where you know exactly how much you're going to lose because you've got an options contract than just, hey, you know what? I'm going to buy uh, a thousand shares of, of Shopify here under this earnings report and hope I get lucky. <laughs> and hope that IV doesn't crush you when that earnings report comes out. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, shit, that's going to kind of make it hard to, to ask these questions then, huh? Yeah, the listener questions are, are out. Well, I think we can modify this one. So when you're, say you're looking at a, a stock that uh, is sitting near all-time highs or all-time lows, like how do you set your, your profit targets? Uh, the question was more like choosing strike prices when the underlying is near those levels. But sure, if you're... if if you've got a stock that's broken out into an all-time high and you're going long trying to ride the continuation of that, what? how would you pick those targets? Do you use FIB retracements or? No, I don't believe in, in magic, magic numbers. <laughs> <laughs> magic, that's I, science. I, no. I, got, I got a great story about one time when I found myself selling magic rings at the side of the Great Wall of China, but mm-hmm. we can save that for another day if you want. <laughs> sounds like a good thing to end on so uh, on the upside again i I go back to the thought process of if if i'm looking at something that's at all-time highs there is no there is no maximum on that right Mm -hmm. so i want to that's where the trend following rules really kind of come into play and implementing you know what we were discussing earlier to really maximize the the reward on that you can pay attention to extension rules i think extension rules are important you know, when, when stocks move up too fast and mm-hmm. and how much that is varies based on the type of company that you're looking at and, and kind of how you're you're measuring your extension. But, you know, you can even just look at the end of 2020, early 2021, when we're in the growth stock bubble there, just things were getting so out of hand, it, out of hand with how extended they were on the upside and people were still chasing price. It was just, uh, it, it wasn't going to end well. 
And then, you know, on, on the downside, the, the question was buying stocks that are at all-time lows? Was that the question? Well, it was choosing targets, basically. So he wanted to know how to choose a strike price when the underlying is near an all-time high or low. Got you. So I, I guess on the on the downside, it depends if you're trying to make money long, long or short. If you've got something on, on the all-time low there, are you picking a bottom and getting smelly fingers or are you, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, looking, looking for, for further continuation to the downside there? And, 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 and again, look, th- there's nothing wrong with strategically looking for a stock to kind of bottom out. And I've done that now more recently with some of these growth stocks mm-hmm. as I was just, you know, talking about them being in bubbles, um, you know, whatever, a year and a half ago at this point. You can do it, but you got to do it strategically and you got to have your risk management in place. As a general rule, if you're looking at a stock that's at all-time lows, you don't want to catch a flowing knife. You want to try to buy it on the way up. Mm-hmm. And there can be rules that can enable you to buy stocks on the way up based on when you see certain things. But otherwise, if you're short, then sure, you know, your target zero, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Ride it into the ground. All right. All right. Tell us about China now. Selling magic rings. Yes. Selling magic rings in China at the Great Wall. I, I had a really, so I've been to China a few times before COVID hit and I've always had really great experiences there because I've had uh, some traders on my desk in the past at T3 Trading Group who were from China, you know, got great educations here in the United States, but eventually ran into visa issues that caused them to go back. And one person in particular, he started his own trading company out there. Another person started his own hedge fund company out there and they started by working with me. And um, you know they were really gracious on a couple of occasions to in- invite me out to China to give some some lectures or to you know give them some some advice during the business formation of of what they were doing. And you know was happy to oblige. And they just gave me these great experiences, showing me the whole country. And the one time when I got to go to Beijing, they took me to the Great Wall of China. The great Wall of China. It's incredible. But the first thing I would say is when I first got there, I, I thought it was the worst place I've ever been to in my life <laughs> because <laughs> it was a, a summer, hot, sunny day. And it, I was in a very crowded area Ugh. and all the women use umbrellas to keep the, the sun off their head. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, from America, I'm six feet tall. So I'm a tend to be probably a little bit oh, taller than, than the average, you know, <laughs> Chinese woman. So they happen to hold all of their umbrellas right at my eye height. Yep. So I'm like trying trying to trying to get up the Great Wall of China. I'm like batting off umbrellas left and right. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually we got away from the crowds and it was just a, an incredible opportunity. We just walked for miles and miles and miles. Like it was it was a really beautiful, awesome experience. We found like a random illegal beer seller on the wall and he we bought some <laughs> beers from him that we were drinking just a really cool experience but when we go to finally leave we accidentally left the wrong part of the wall and we were just in like an entirely different mountainous region that i guess was miles and miles and miles away from where he, we parked the car tibet <laughs> <laughs> so, so the guy and and you know keep my i don't speak a word of chinese uh you know right the, the guy that I'm with is like, all right, you know, let me let me go try to figure this out. Next thing I know, he's talking to some some vendor there at the top at the side of the wall, and he looks at me and he goes, "Okay, this guy agreed to go to try to go to the road to get a cab for us, but we have mm-hmm. to stay here and we have to watch his his shop." <laughs> and it was like, you know, one of them outdoor tables where they where they sell stuff, and he was trying to sell these magic Chinese rings. And, huh. <laughs> you know, you, got, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Those steel rings that you like, like 
Like the mood rings? No, the steel rings that like, no, like the puzzle game. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, exactly. Okay. Like magicians can bang them together and they're steel, but all of a sudden they're combined type of thing. Right. Yeah. So I, I've got, and, and I say to myself, you know what? This guy's doing us a favor. We got to try to get some sales for him. So I got in my one hand and he had, you know, the dummy props out and, and the other ones were in the box or whatever. Mm-hmm. I got in my one hand, the completed rings that were magic rings that were combined. And I've got also two rings that aren't combined yet. So I'm like, you know, and here I am, this American yelling at people in English at, at the side of the Great Wall trying to sell these things. <laughs> and I, and, I, and I'm, 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 I'm taking the two rings that weren't combined yet and I'm clanging them together. And I'm like reaching behind my back and taking the two that already were together. And then I'm like, and then see, you can make them look like this. And they're combined, like it's magic. You gotta just be able to do it yourself. <laughs> eventually I, I like get a sale to probably like some like 14 year old kid like he comes in and, and he buys and i'm like and i'm like so pumped like yes you know we got a sale like this guy he's doing a favor favor for us he's gonna be super pumped that we got a sale for him and then a little while later the kid's mom comes back and you know again i'm assuming in chinese she's like hey you know you sold these magic rings they don't work we don't know how to be able to put them together and i'm like well i don't know how to be able to put them together either <laughs> luckily just at that moment is when the vendor came back and he was able to make make everybody happy and uh get the sale from there but definitely a cool experience and i still don't believe in magic or, or magic numbers to this day <laughs> <laughs> Even when you know it's a trick, that doesn't really work. <laughs> it's all a trick. It's all yep. a trick. Well, it looks like we're coming up on the end of the day, unfortunately, Derek. All right. Well, Dan and Kyle, I'm glad you guys had me. It was a good time. I had a blast talking to you. You want to uh, let the listeners know where they can find you? Sure. So I'm a professional trader with t3tradinggroup.com or t3trading.com. I'm a professional trader for T3 Trading Group. You can also find me at t3live.com, which is our education and media company. And I've recently started my own YouTube that you guys can give a subscribe to. If you YouTube Derek the Trader, my first name is D-E-R-R-I-C-K, Derek the Trader on YouTube. I just created this uh, YouTube channel recently. I'm getting a lot of cool little mini trading lessons in there. And I'm also, I've been broadcasting my team's 4, 10 p.m. afternoon meeting live through there. Oh, that's cool. Uh, Monday through Thursday recently. So you guys can check that out to get an idea of you know what my team of professional traders and I are talking about on a day-to-day basis. Are you on the Twitter or any of those? At ProDesk VTF. ProDesk VTF. Yep. The, the ProDesk virtual trading floor is the virtual gotcha. trading floor that I manage through T3 Live. So at ProDesk VTF on, on Twitter. I'll make sure there are links for all those things in the episode description so people don't have to try to memorize everything. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. All right, Dan, you want to take us home? All right, folks. Thanks for joining us today. We, we hope uh, you learned a lot. I know I did. Uh, it's been a great time, Derek. Thank you again for coming by. Great, great content. Thank you. And as always, you you don't have to go home, but we're closing up the shop. So you got to clear on out. Until (laughs) next time, happy trades. Bye. See ya. Two Bulls in a China Shop is an entertainment program, and all thoughts and opinions expressed in the show belong to the hosts and not of any company. 
They are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security or investment product. It is only intended to provide entertainment about stocks and the financial industry of trading. If you make trades based on what you hear in this show, you assume all risks for those trades.